Hi everyone, this is your host, John Hagedorn. A note before we begin this story. The credit to much of this story goes to the efforts of Callie Martin, who wrote an in-depth article for the National World War II Museum on behalf of the Department of Defense, which places the text in the public domain. I'm giving her credit here and encourage you to read the full article at nationalww2museum.org. In addition, other facts were used from a U.S. Army historian article titled The German Job by Fred L. Burke III at uscorps.gov. This is also in the public domain. Other online sources were used, including my own text and comments. And now, our story. Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. This is your host, John Hagedorn. Today, the Hess Crown Jewel Heist in World War II Germany, a U.S. Army scandal. In November of 1945, three American Army officers, two men and a woman, stationed in Germany, pulled off a dramatic jewel heist when they stole the Hess family crown jewels which they found concealed in a German castle occupied by U.S. troops. To the credit of the U.S. Army, they were caught, tried by a military tribunal, and sent to prison for their crimes. Of course, they pled innocent, trying to make the case that the family they stole from had Nazi affiliations, that the U.S. authority had no legal right to protect the contents of the castle, and that the millions of dollars worth of gems should be considered public property that other Americans were stealing plundered Nazi loot. So why look at us? And more. As we all know, criminals can always find a way to justify their crimes. They rationalize. Well, I was going to donate part of it to my church. I have a sickly mother who needs an operation. Etc. Etc. There are 4,000 pages of testimony given by the three accused. So they and their lawyers were full of excuses because a few got surprisingly light sentences for their actions. To the U.S. Army, the theft of a family collection of jewels by their officers was a scandal. The headlines from the trial of the three, and the facts of how easily they had been able to transfer stolen property back to the U.S., did not fare well for the American military's presence in Europe. By the way, I did check the pronunciation of the name Hess, H-E-S-S-E, which is pronounced Hess in English, and Hesse in German. Another note, although the Nazis are well known for their plunder of most of Europe, other Americans and Europeans also helped to make some of that plunder disappear, to private collectors mostly, but some to dealers of antiquities and precious stones, and some to museums, provided the paperwork looked legit. There are many books revealing the still ongoing search for Nazi plunder, especially art, and there is a wealth of detail regarding the American effort to locate the Nazis' hiding places and the political intrigue that surrounded the hunt in the days immediately following the end of the war in Europe. As far as the Russians go, that's a complicated story. The Nazis plundered a great deal from Russia. They both plundered a great deal from countries like Poland and Czechoslovakia and Bulgaria. Russia plundered a fallen German republic under the name of Deserved Retribution. And even today, the Ukraine is charging Russia with art and cultural artifacts theft on a grand scale in the current war in Ukraine. Germany and Russia will never come to terms over World War II, and the world will need at least another century to forgive Germany for its war crimes. As I looked deeper into this story, it read like a crime novel. 
the Americans nearly got away with it. But the American military's code of honor was working in that instance, as well as some others. For instance, America's efforts to return stolen artwork, cultural artifacts, and stolen treasure to its rightful owners is a great example. And the three U.S. Army officers were sent to prison. In a little while, we'll share the story of the three's desperate attempts to sell the stolen jewelry and artifacts, and we'll describe what they tried to do with all the gems, cash, and collectibles, even going to the extreme of burying it in glass jars in the Virginia countryside. The three thieves destroyed dozens of artifacts, greedily prying the gemstones out of tiaras, rings, gold mountings, silver mountings, and other jewelry, and then attempting, and sometimes succeeding, in selling to pawnbrokers and second-hand jewelers. One example, one of the thieves, Major Watson, according to Kenneth Alford's book, The Spoils of World War II, shows the Major selling scrap silver and gold, from which the jewels had been yanked out to a pawn shop in Belfast, Ireland, called the Belfast Gold Exchange. When Major Watson traveled to Northern Ireland in November and December of 1945, he sold scrap gold and silver mountings from which he and the other accomplices had forcibly removed the gems, as well as old-fashioned Victorian ladies' gold mesh handbags, gold Easter eggs, a red Easter egg made by Fabergé and inlaid with diamonds, and then silver coins, broken jewelry, bangles, chains, and similar items which he said he had found in Italy. One of those coins was Italian, which was as close as he ever got to telling the truth. The items that Major Watson was carrying had all belonged to Princess Mafalda, the daughter of the King and Queen of Italy, who had married into the Hess family. We will arrive at her sad story soon, and what happened to her when Hitler, reacting to the capture of Mussolini, decided to punish the princess's husband and sent Mafalda to Buchenwald as part of the punishment. Of course, the American officer pawning his stolen jewelry couldn't have known the sad history of the lady whose treasure he was carrying, or did he? He also gave a few of the stolen baubles to his ex-girlfriend in Belfast. His partners, Durant and Nash, journeyed to Switzerland and sold gold and jewels in Bern, Basel, and Zurich. Much more to come of their actions in the story ahead. Half of the Hess treasure, worth tens of millions, has never been found. The Hess family jewels had an incredible history, as well as the Hess family, which had marriage and family ties with the uppermost tiers of both English and Italian royalty. The story of the jewels begins in late 1944, with the Allies closing in on Berlin, and Prince Wolfgang, at Germany's House of Hesse, becoming worried that the immense collection of family jewels, honestly come by, and representing many generations of the family, needed to be transported out, or well hidden. It couldn't safely be transported out, so the prince decided to hide it deep in the bowels of the family castle at Kronberg, at Schloss Friedrichshof, north of Frankfurt. He knew he had to leave soon or risk being captured, so he secretly placed the Hess crown jewels, which included over 500 carats of loose diamonds, a 116-carat sapphire, diamond and jewel-studded tiaras, rings, pendants, bracelets, and much more, into a large, zinc-lined wooden box. He dug a hole in the cellar of his castle and lowered the box down, covering it with concrete. To further ensure the safety of the jewels, he built a fake wall, which created a secret room that held the treasure. The items belonged to the German princely house of Hesse Castle, 
an old noble family with ties to the British and Italian royal families. By 1940, the head of the House of Hesse Castle was Prince Philip von Hessen, who was considered by some to be part of Hitler's inner circle. There are pictures showing him standing with Hitler and others as a military parade passes by them. He was also the great-grandson of England's Queen Victoria, and later husband to the daughter of Italy's King Victor Emmanuel III. It's nearly impossible to write about any royal family in Europe after 1900 without circling back to Queen Victoria of England. World War I was, at some level, a battle fought between cousins. When Queen Victoria died in 1901, her son and heir, the future King Edward VII, who was succeeded by his son George V in 1910, and her oldest grandson, Emperor Wilhelm II of Germany, were by her side. Wilhelm and his sister Margaret were two of the children born to Queen Victoria's daughter, Victoria. Margaret married Prince Frederick Charles of Hesse, and in 1896 gave birth to the twins Philip and Wolfgang, followed by Christoph in 1901. It was to Wolfgang that responsibility for the Hess crown jewels fell. The two brothers at the center of the story are Philip and Christoph, who were nephews of the former emperor Wilhelm II of Germany, and, as mentioned, great-grandsons of Queen Victoria of England. The royal family connections grew with the marriages of Philip and Christoph. In 1925, Philip married Princess Mafalda of Savoy, the daughter of King Victor Emmanuel III of Italy. Five years later, in 1930, Christoph married Princess Sophie of Greece and Denmark, whose younger brother was Philip, the future Duke of Edinburgh and husband to Queen Elizabeth II of England. Sophie was a great-great-granddaughter of Queen Victoria through her mother. The backstory here is important to set up who Philip was, and the realm of nobility in which he lived. Many of the jewels, which become central to this story, were gifts from the royal families of Europe, and were part and parcel of the status of all that nobility. That establishes the fact that the jewels that the three American army officers stole were not stolen Nazi loot. They were not taken from the poor, obviously. The fact that the wealthy families of Europe hoarded all the wealth, while the poor suffered, may have greatly contributed to the fall of royal families, but it has nothing to do with that theft. For instance, if you believe that the Romanov family deserved to be slaughtered and have their bodies burned and dumped in a mine well just because they were rich, then you need to be leading your own band of socialists in another country. On October 1, 1930, in the Berlin apartment of Hermann Goering, the Nazi party made heavy use of German nobility in the early years of the party's climb to power and takeover of the German government, and Philip and Christoph were no exception. Both Philip and Christoph had close relationships with Goering through the 1930s. By 1934, Christoph was working in the Forschungsamt, the F.A., in the Reich Air Ministry, which was a signal intelligence organization. The next year, Christoph was put in charge of the F.A., sort of like our CIA, which focused on gaining intelligence from phone conversations and telegraphs, intercepting as many as 34,000 messages a day. Christoph had joined the SS in 1932, and by 1939 had reached the rank of Oberführer, or senior leader, holding a staff position within the organization. This allowed Christoph to partially bridge a gap between Goering and Heinrich Himmler, who desperately wanted to take party control of the F.A. When party leaders take control of national intelligence-gathering entities, things in any country can go haywire fast. 
Christoph would die in an airplane crash in 1943. Philip was a supporter of Hitler and was known to openly admire him. Like Hitler, Philip was a veteran of World War I, although he only briefly participated in combat in Ukraine in 1918. In 1925, as mentioned, Philip married Princess Mafalda, and the couple made their home at the Villa Polissima in Rome, living close to Mafalda's parents, who happened to be the king and queen of Italy. Between 1926 and 1940, the couple had four children, three sons and a daughter. Philip and Princess Mafalda were very likely the connection that Hitler used to bring Italy into the Axis side in World War II. It is a fact that as Hitler's desire for Lebensraum for the German people grew, Philip became a liaison between Mussolini and Hitler. But when Mussolini was assassinated, the table would turn on Philip and his wife very quickly. By the spring of 1943, Prince Philip von Hessen's relationship with Hitler had begun to fall apart. After Philip gave Hitler an honest report of the situation in Italy, explaining issues with Mussolini and a likely political collapse, Hitler became cold towards the prince. Likewise, Philip's relationship with Hermann Goering had become strained as far back as 1939. But things were about to get worse. In April of 1943, Hitler summoned Philip to Berchtesgaden, requiring him to stay at a hotel there until given further orders. As Hitler moved from one location to another, he kept Philip with him, under a sort of house arrest, allowing him to leave only twice. The last time, in July, to visit his family in Rome when his son underwent an operation. That trip was cut short when Hitler urgently recalled him to the Fuhrer's headquarters on July 22, 1943. Three days later, King Victor Emmanuel III had Mussolini arrested, sealing the fate of both the former Prime Minister and Philip. Infuriated by Mussolini's arrest, Hitler attempted to use Philip as leverage against the Italian king to release Mussolini. Although Philip was not involved in the plot to remove Mussolini, Hitler had him formally arrested on September 8, 1943, the same day that Italy surrendered to the Allied forces. Brought before the head of the Gestapo, Heinrich Müller, Philip was stripped of his membership in the Nazi Party and the SA and had his honorary commission in the Luftwaffe revoked. Müller explained to Philip that the man he had been no longer existed and that from that point forward he would be known as Herr Widhoff. Stripped of his identity, Philip was then shipped south to the Flossenburg concentration camp in Bavaria. Philip survived the war, having to leverage family properties to pay penalties while restoring others for use. Some became hotels, others became museums. Philip's children survived the war and were reunited with their father, but Philip's wife, Mafalda, was not reunited with her family. On September 8, 1943, the same day that Philip had been arrested, Philip's wife, Mafalda, was not reunited with her family. She was in Sofia, Bulgaria, attending the funeral of her brother-in-law, King Boris III, on September 8, 1943, the same day that Hitler arrested Philip. Boris had brought Bulgaria into alliance with the Axis, but refused to declare war on the Soviet Union, created a contentious relationship with Hitler. Thus, the king's death was considered suspicious by Nazi leaders, in particular the Minister of Propaganda, Joseph Goebbels. Mafalda was particularly loathed by Goebbels, who went so far as to accuse her of poisoning her brother-in-law. Mafalda returned to Italy from Bulgaria on September 21st 
taking refuge in the Vatican with her children, while her parents, King Victor Emmanuel and Queen Elena, fled south. The next day, Mafalda received a note that Philip wanted to speak with her and had arranged to contact her via phone at the German embassy. As she neared the embassy, later that day, Mafalda was met by an SS officer who told her that Philip would in fact be flying into Rome and had requested she meet him at the airport. Unaware that her husband had been arrested, Mafalda believed the officer and allowed him to transport her to the airfield. Philip never arrived, and Mafalda, eventually ordered to board an aircraft, met with another lie that Philip would meet them in Munich. Flying past the Bavarian city, the plane continued on to Berlin, where Mafalda was met by Gestapo agents. If she had been uncertain of her fate before, it was clear to her then that she was now a prisoner of the Third Reich. For two weeks, Mafalda was held at Gestapo facilities in the Berlin area, where her cell did not even contain a bed. During that time, she was treated harshly and interrogated repeatedly. In late October, Princess Mafalda was transported to the Buchenwald concentration camp under the assumed name Frau von Weber. There she was housed in the isolation barracks near an armament factory and was told that Philip had died. Mafalda was housed with other prominent prisoners, including members of the Stauffenberg family and the former Austrian Chancellor Kurt von Schuschnigg. In the summer of 1944, Mafalda was informed that her children were all safe, though her requests to see them were always denied. Life at Buchenwald was full of unpredictable dangers, including aerial bombings by, by Allied air forces. On August 24, 1944, a bombing run targeted the munitions factory near the isolation barracks. As often happened, three errant bombs missed their intended target instead of hitting the camp. One hit the isolation barracks, starting a fire, and another fell nearby, crushing a covering under which Mafalda had sought refuge. Buried under rubble, Mafalda was critically wounded. A second version of this story tells of her being dragged out of her cell and chained to the wall of one of the targets, a munitions factory, while the bombing attack took place. In other words, she was used as a human shield on the outside of a defense factory to save it from bombs. How this fact might have been communicated to the Allies? is not known. Though she was quickly pulled from the rubble, one arm was burned severely, some reports claim, to the bone. After the bombing, which killed about 400 prisoners, Mafalda and other wounded prisoners were taken to another barracks for treatment. Two days later, her arm had become infected and the camp doctor amputated her arm. The procedure went badly, and Mafalda never regained consciousness, dying sometime on the night of August 26-27th from blood loss. Fellow inmates stole her body and buried it on the campgrounds under a rough marker which said, Unknown. When the camp was liberated in April of 1945, inmates told their liberators who was buried in the unknown grave, and the news of Mafalda's death quickly spread worldwide. For the larger part of the von Hessen family, the war brought similar struggles and danger. Spread among several residences in the castle area, the family experienced frequent bombings by Allied air forces in 1943 and 44. Numerous family homes were destroyed in bombings, and Philip's sister-in-law was killed in February of 44 by a bombing attack. Family tombs in the Church of St. Martin were destroyed, as was the Landgrave Museum, which Philip had created as governor of Hesse. So we've established the Hesse family's ties to royalty, as well as the brothers' allegiance to Hitler, all of which would be their undoing. Now to Wolfgang's story at the Castle Kronberg.
In April of 1945, elements of Patton's Third Army arrived at the home of the von Hessen family in Castle, Schloss Friedrichshof, more commonly referred to as Kronberg Castle. Princess Marguerite was living in a cottage on the grounds, and Christoph's wife, Princess Sophia, and her four children, along with Philip's children and other family members, were living in the main home. Told to pack within four hours and leave, they were only allowed to take food, clothing, and a few personal items. The family fled, believing that they had left some of their most valuable possessions well hidden. Throughout 1943 and 44, bombings in the Frankfurt area had increased in frequency, and the von Hessen family and their homes had not escaped loss. As the bombings worsened, Wolfgang gathered the family, and the decision was made to safeguard a large collection of family jewels. With pieces gifted by the likes of Queen Victoria and inherited from German Kaisers, the collection of family jewels was worth a fortune. The jewels had been deposited at several banks in Frankfurt for safekeeping, but the worsening bombing raids threatened their loss, so they pulled them out. They brought their most prized pieces to Wolfgang, who, along with the estate manager, Heinrich Lang, packaged the items neatly, created an inventory for each package. One remained with the items, another went with Lang for safekeeping. Gathered with the valuable tiaras, necklaces, and bracelets, made of diamonds, sapphires, rubies, and other valuable gems, were other priceless family heirlooms and pieces such as gold cutlery, family Bibles, valuable snuff boxes, and the like. All of the parcels were put into a zinc-lined wooden box. The waterproof lining was soldered shut, and a top was put onto the box. In the basement of Kronberg Castle, the castle staff dug a hole in the ground, buried the box, and covered the spot with cement. A false wall was then built to hide the area in which the box was buried. The family was convinced of the safety of their priceless pieces. On March 29, 1945, troops of an African-American unit arrived at the large family castle known as Schloss Friedrichshof. Several weeks later, elements of Patton's Third Army arrived at the castle and informed the remaining family and staff that the castle was to be occupied by American forces. Philip's mother, sister-in-law Sophia, and others were given four hours to pack and leave the grounds. Male family members were arrested, including Philip's twin brother, Wolfgang von Hessen, who was head of the family in Philip's absence. In the hands of American forces, the castle became an officer's club after the war ended in May. With huge dining rooms and plenty of bedrooms, it was a beautiful location for American officers to get a little R&R. Kronberg Castle was owned at that time by 74-year-old Countess Marguerite Hess, the Princess of Prussia and granddaughter of Queen Victoria of England. Her mother had been Empress of Germany, and it had the medieval-styled castle built in a picturesque location nine miles north of Frankfurt, Germany. The German Hess family had ruled the province of Hess, which consisted of 8,000 square miles and a population of 4.5 million people till 1918. Kronberg Castle was a portion of the enterprise known as the House of Hess, which owned and managed land, houses, jewels, and other property. With regard to the huge stash of jewels, these included valuable tiaras, hundreds of platinum necklaces with pearls, rubies, and diamonds, gold brooches with sapphires and diamonds, and hundreds of other jewels, which had been purchased or inherited over the years from English, Greek, and Italian royal families. These were all known collectively as the Hess Crown Jewels. As the story goes, in November of 1945, 
Captain Nash and her staff were exploring the castle when they discovered a fresh patch of concrete down in the far corner of the cellar. You are already aware that a hidden room had been built by Prince Wolfgang to hide that fresh concrete from sight, so that innocent exploration of the cellar by Captain Nash and her staff must have involved some heavy use of sledgehammers to break through that wall and then tear up the fresh concrete. By now her staff was no doubt slimmed down to include her lover, Colonel Jack Durant, and fellow conspirator, Major David Watson. Captain Nash had divorced her high school sweetheart, left her two 19-year-old children, and subtracted nine years from her 39 years of age to join the Army to, as she later put it, get away from it all. The long trial which took place after she and her pals were caught identified her as the primary instigator of the theft. Yet somehow she served the easiest sentence. As they broke through the concrete, they discovered a zinc-lined chamber, and within it was a wooden box containing several packages individually wrapped in brown paper. Inside those packages were the Hess crown jewels, a collection of necklaces, crowns, and other jewelry worth millions of dollars. It's not hard to imagine the shock, followed by greed, that overcame the three American Army officers when they realized what they had just discovered. To the U.S. Army officers visiting the castle, the castle was the most opulent residence they'd ever seen. It had a hundred rooms and was full of lavish furnishings, gifts from kaisers, czars, and queens, even a collection of letters between Queen Victoria and her daughter. In June, it was all turned over to the care of Women's Army Corps officer, Captain Kathleen Nash. Nash, born in Wisconsin in 1902, had been living with her husband and two older teenage children in Arizona. In 1940, as discussed, she divorced her husband and two years later lied about her age and joined the WAAC, Women's Army Auxiliary Corps. On June 15, 1945, she was literally given the keys to the castle as the officer of the mess section at the club. Nash was given the authority to use household items as needed and was charged with the safekeeping of the contents of the castle. An inventory, though not complete, had been taken, and dozens of desks, chairs, and other furniture had already been officially removed for use elsewhere by Army personnel. Within the first week, a painting by Peter Paul Rubin and a sculpted marble hand went missing. Distraught, Nash went to authorities, and an investigation was launched by the Army's CID, Criminal Investigation Division. In response to the theft, a check-in desk was set up, and one of the original servants of the house was always situated by the door to watch for theft. But the officers were undeterred, and small items continued to go missing as everyone wanted some sort of souvenir to take home with them. By November 1945, Nash was running a successful officers' club, and had begun to hear rumors about buried treasure— her assistant informed her that a German mentioned he knew where valuables were buried. Curiosity got the better of them, and Nash allowed her assistant to search the castle. Binding the false wall, the assistant broke into it with a sledgehammer, behind which was the area where the box of jewels had been buried. The stories vary as to whether Nash ordered the cement patch investigated, or if the box was found and brought to her attention. Regardless, the box was found, and Nash knew. The fate of the items inside was sealed and their decision to steal the collection rather than report it was sealed as well. There, in her room, Nash opened the neatly wrapped packages containing the most valuable jewels belonging to the Hess family. She immediately called an officer whom she had befriended, Colonel Jack Durant. 
Durant was an Army Air Force's staff officer who spent the war in Washington, D.C. He was assigned as the executive officer to the deputy chief of staff of the U.S. Army Air Force in August 1945, and finally made it to Europe. Durant then brought his assistant into the loop, who was Major David Watson. Watson was a quartermaster officer who had been assigned to Chafe, Supreme Headquarters Allied Expeditionary Forces, and had been personally presented with the Bronze Star by General Dwight D. Eisenhower. The three began to spend more time together, and stories of drinking binges became local legend. With the unimaginable treasures in hand, the trio began to discuss how to get items home. They couldn't simply take them home with them. It would be too obvious, and the risk of getting caught was too likely. So the three settled on several methods. They took many of the stones out of their settings and sold the gold, silver, and platinum settings here and there. Larger gems were sold solo, smaller ones in batches. Watson traveled to Northern Ireland several times to sell gems and medals, giving some baubles to a girlfriend there to keep. Nash and Durant traveled across Switzerland on at least one occasion, selling gems and settings where they could. Though they unloaded a fair amount, not all of the gems were sold in Europe. Other items, which seemed less conspicuous, were sent via army post. Watson sent a silver pitcher to his mother, while Nash mailed a gold cutlery set to her sister in Wisconsin. Durant was able to send some items in diplomatic pouches, avoiding search. Many items were sent to his brother in Virginia and Fairfax. In all, an estimated 30 boxes were shipped to the States between the three. Over the next several months, and into 1946, the three continued to sell off gems and metal scraps here and there, amassing quite a decent amount of cash. No doubt they were riding high, assuming they were getting away with it. In February 1946, Nash received orders to return to the United States. She was to be separated from the Army, as her enlistment was up. Durant returned to the United States on 30 days' leave in March, taking more loot with him. His orders allowed him to circumvent having baggage inspected. However, unbeknownst to the trio, an investigation had already been launched into the disappearance of the jewels. The day after the treasure was found, one of the original house staff reported the news to longtime manager of the estate, Heinrich Lang, who promptly informed Princess Marguerite of the removal of the jewels. She asked Lang to get a statement from Nash acknowledging that the box had been found and a date upon which the items would be returned to the family. Nash refused to meet with the princess or give more information than a hollow promise that the jewels would still be there when the family got the castle back. In January of 1946, as Nash, Durant, and Watson continued selling off gemstones and precious metals, Princess Sophia was preparing for her second wedding. Nash declined all requests from Sophie to meet and return her jewels. So the Hesses contacted the U.S. Army office responsible for protecting German cultural and historic artifacts and asked for an investigation to be launched. When they were slow to act, Princess Sophia went straight to the Criminal Investigation Division in April and asked them to investigate. She was convinced by this point that the jewels had been stolen, and how right she was. We'll return with the Hess Crown Jewel Heist in World War II Germany, right after these sponsor messages. And now, back to our story. Back in the U.S., Durant was on leave in the East Coast, trying to either sell or hide everything he had brought back. It was difficult to sell gems without paperwork, 
but Durant managed to unload several large ones, using a fake name at times. He even used a diamond to help buy a car. Dash, on terminal leave, leave taken before discharge from the military, prior to her discharge, was out in California, but traveled to Chicago in March to meet up with Durant. There, they tried to sell more gems, but the jeweler refused, as none of the gems had the required customs documents. The jeweler called the police, providing an important tip to investigators. From there, the situation began to decline quickly for Nash and Durant. Trouble was brewing all around for the trio. The investigation soon landed on Captain Nash, Colonel Jack Durant, and Major David Watson. The three had stolen the jewels, broken many up, and begun selling them off, confident they were getting away with it. By April, when Sophie went to the CID, Nash and Durant had already returned to the United States, but Watson was still in Frankfurt, so the investigators had an easy time keeping track of him. A customs agent contacted Durant, who was forced to surrender 102 loose diamonds he had not declared upon returning to the United States. Durant then forged paperwork which claimed he was being separated from active duty. When Durant visited his former secretary to pick up more stolen items which she had brought back for him, she asked him if he was concerned about getting into trouble over the stolen goods, and Durant replied, Get into trouble? I'm already up to my neck in it now. Although Durant was feeling the heat, he and Nash occasionally flaunted their loot. Dining with friends in Chicago, Nash wore a platinum watch with 606 diamonds that had belonged to Mafelda. At that time, it was valued at $7,500. Today, that amount would be $110,000. An expensive watch. In addition to selling jewels, Durant had his brother help him bury loose stones in jars in numerous locations in Virginia. On May 28, 1946, Nash and Durant married. The motive behind their nuptials had been questioned. They had not known each other for very long, and Durant had been seeing other women. But Durant had been a lawyer before joining the U.S. Army Air Forces, and no doubt knew that if and when they were caught and tried, neither could be forced to testify against the other if they were married. They also had reason to believe their situation was in jeopardy. Four days before their marriage, Nash's terminal leave was canceled. On May 29th, she received a telegram ordering her to report to Fort Sheridan, Illinois. A couple days later, Durant received notice that his leave was canceled, and he was to report to the same location. The possibility of that being a coincidence was too slim. They knew something was up. Nash and Durant chose to ignore the orders, though, and visited her sister in Wisconsin before traveling to Chicago. They still had a good deal of jewels with them at that time. There, they checked into the luxurious LaSalle Hotel on June 2nd. After depositing their luggage in their room and changing, Nash and Durant left for the evening, unaware that CID men would be waiting for them in the room next door. At two in the morning, the pair returned to their room and ordered champagne. As they were filling their glasses, there was a knock on the door. A CID arrest team was moving in. It was over. Nash was immediately taken into custody and subjected to a polygraph test. When asked about taking the jewels from Kronberg Castle, Nash failed the test. Durant was taken into custody the following day, though he was not held. Meanwhile, investigators interviewed Nash and Durant's families, searched their homes, and the home of Nash's former assistant. A fair amount of the stolen goods were found, and Durant directed them to Moore via one of the individuals who had purchased gems from him. 
Once officially charged with the theft, Nash and Durant were flown back to Germany, where Watson was in custody, and where their trials would take place. As the theft had taken place in Germany, they were each tried independently in court-martials in Frankfurt. The publicity surrounding the trials was so hot that tickets were printed for civilians who wished to witness the trials. The first to be tried was Nash. Her trial began in late August 1946 and lasted just over a month. Nash was charged with being absent without leave, larceny, fraud, fraud against the government, conduct unbecoming of an officer and a gentleman, and bringing discredit upon military service. Wearing a uniform stripped of insignia, Nash appeared in court and refused to enter a plea. Her lawyer argued that since she had been put on terminal leave, the Army no longer had jurisdiction over her. He further argued that the family had abandoned the items, therefore making them fair game to be taken by Allied personnel. They were, he declared, legitimate spoils of war. The extensive trial included witness testimony by Princesses Sophie and Marguerite, as well as the estate manager, Heinrich Lang, and other members of the Hessen family. The stolen items which had been recovered were laid out in a grand exhibition, illustrating the enormity of what had been taken. The list of items Nash was accused of stealing was nearly four pages long. The full record of the Hess Heist Courts Martial, numbering more than 12,000 pages, is available from the National Archives. At the end of the trial, despite her lawyer's efforts to claim she shouldn't be tried for what others had done, taking enemy loot, Nash was found guilty of being absent without leave and of the theft of the jewels. She was discharged from military service and sentenced to serve five years in a federal prison. Watson was tried next, and his trial was brief, lasting only two weeks. He was found not guilty of larceny of the Hessen family jewels, on the basis that Nash and Durant had been the ones to actually steal the items. Watson was found guilty of bringing discredit to military service by giving away or selling items stolen from the castle. He was dismissed from service and confined to hard labor for three years. Nash and Watson were tried first, with the hopes that if found guilty, Durant's case might be made easier. Durant's court-martial began in Frankfurt in December of 1946 and lasted until April of 1947. Nash was brought in to testify, but as the two were married, she had to consent to do so. When asked if she consented, Nash said no and was removed from the witness stand. Durant's brother, sister-in-law, and an old girlfriend were called in to testify. The three refused to fly to Germany, not wishing to participate in the trial, and could not be forced to travel. So instead, proceedings were temporarily relocated to Washington, D.C., to compel them to participate. The girlfriend cooperated, but Durant's brother and his wife refused to cooperate. On the stand, each responded, I declined to answer, when asked a question. Jewelers from various cities in both the United States and Europe testified against Durant. Once again, items stolen from the family were laid out as evidence. Also entered into evidence were numerous photos of the Princesses von Hessen, showing wherein the intact pieces which Durant and his co-conspirators had broken apart. At the trial's conclusion, Durant was found guilty. Considered by most to be the ringleader of the whole ordeal, Durant received the most severe punishment— dismissed from service, and 15 years of hard labor. After their trials, each of the conspirators, now guilty and in prison, began their appeals. Almost as soon as she was incarcerated, 
Nash began an appeal of her case. She did not try to plead innocence, but continued to fight her strong belief that the Army no longer had jurisdiction over her at the time of her arrest. A district court agreed, and Nash was let go. However, the government appealed, and the original ruling was upheld. Nash had to return to prison in 1948 and serve out the remainder of her sentence. Watson began a campaign to get clemency. He collected 275 letters of support. His case was reviewed, and he was paroled in December of 1947. He then turned his efforts to obtaining a presidential pardon, which he received from then-President Eisenhower in 1957. Durant likewise challenged his conviction, but was unsuccessful in his appeals. He remained in prison until 1952. During that time, he and Nash divorced, though they reunited after his release and lived together until their deaths in the 1980s. Nash, Durant, and Watson had all tried desperately to make the claim that they were just doing what thousands of other G.I.s had done, taking war loot. They justified taking jewels and other items from the von Hessen family due to the family's ties to the Nazi party, and that the family had abandoned them. The courts upheld the ruling that just because everyone else was doing it didn't mean it wasn't against the law. In the end, it was theft, plain and simple. Stealing tiaras from princesses was not the same as taking a mattress out of an abandoned building or picking up Luger pistols on the battlefield. As for the jewels, in the end an estimated $2.5 million worth of jewels and other items had been stolen, which is equivalent to around $36 million today. Some stones that were buried by Durant and his brother were allegedly never found, though his brother, who lived a very financially modest life, left a rather sizable estate. A footnote can be added there. One of those glass jars we mentioned that were buried in Virginia was found near the Leesburg Pike, near Falls Church, and contained $28,000 worth of U.S. currency. Despite numerous pleas from and on behalf of the Hessen family, the surviving items weren't returned until 1951. It was estimated that less than half were recovered, and since so many had been dismantled, the whole collection was estimated to be worth only a tenth of its previous value. Some items did survive intact, like the wheat tiara Mafalda wore at her wedding. Younger generations of Hessian brides continue to wear the surviving pieces, or new pieces, fashioned from the stones. It is unlikely that any of the jewels or pieces yet unrecovered will ever surface. Once taken out of an identifiable setting, most gems are almost impossible to trace. But the possibility of return remains. In 2015, two paintings were returned to the von Hessen family by the Monuments Men Foundation. It's impossible to cover the subject of the theft of war fortunes without putting it all in perspective. Three U.S. Army officers made headlines looting the Hess crown jewels, and they paid for their greed. World War II was the most devastating conflict in human history. It was global. Millions of people were killed or displaced. The German armed forces looted billions of dollars worth of art, gold, silver, gems, artifacts, and historical treasures. It's true. But American involvement, sadly, was rife. American soldiers snatched thousands of paintings, sculptures, and drawings, as well as photos, books, documents, treasured manuscripts, and even prize horses. Two tons of Nazi gold is stored at the Federal Reserve Bank in New York City. 
U.S. Army officer Gordon Gilkey directed 11,000 paintings which the Germans had seized to Washington, D.C. in 1947, where they're being permanently held at the Pentagon. And more is stored in Swiss banks. American private collectors continue to hoard hundreds of millions of dollars worth of looted art and collectibles from World War II. Former President Herbert Hoover toured post-war Europe, ostensibly to feed starving children, while his staff was in Germany, collecting thousands of captured books and articles so Hoover could fill the Hoover Library at Stanford. Those stories just go on and on and on. Then there was Russia. The New York Times recently ran stories about the Russian theft of German art, millions of dollars worth of which is currently housed in Hermitage Museum in St. Petersburg and the Pushkin Museum in Moscow. And the Russian army kept everything they didn't burn, bomb, or kill. In truth, post-World War II Europe was in ruins. There was very little law in place. And when that situation exists, wolves flourish. It all comes down to people who steal and those who don't. So I don't put it all on the three army officers' backs. They were just some of the ones who got caught. The others have their consciences to deal with, provided they have one. Thanks for joining us here at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast for some relatively unknown World War II history. We always appreciate reviews here at 1001 Heroes, so if you do enjoy our shows, please do take a moment and send us a review. I have some combined reviews to share with you. The first one's for 1001 Sherlock Holmes stories. Five stars, love it. Yay, I'm glad I found this. Down from FNAF Lord Bingo, Apple Podcast US. And this one, great story, five stars, 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. What a really great story. My father's side of the family, Northerns, talk of the Red Scare of the 20s and 30s. Owning stocks in the coal mines, they of course were on the side of the mine owners. My mother's Southerners, of course, sided with the miners. But wasn't sure if the unions were good or communist. Down from Wolfie, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one. I love this podcast, 1001 Classic Short Stories. Five stars. This has quickly become my favorite podcast. I love the short story format that fits nicely with the time frame of my commute home. The 1001 Classic Short Stories podcast has a wonderful selection of classic writers. It's a pleasant change from listening to the news and the dreary state of affairs of our nation on my ride home. That one from Red Fish Hooks, Apple Podcast, U.S. Thank you so much for stopping to leave us these reviews. They are greatly appreciated. We also appreciate our Patreon supporters, who support us for about the cost of a blended cup of coffee every month at patreon.com forward slash 1001storiesnetwork. They also usually receive a pre-release copy of some of our biggest shows coming up every week. Thanks for joining us here at 1001 Heroes. This is your host, John Hagedorn. Stay safe out there, everyone, and we'll be back soon with a brand new story.